What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris, and I have an amazing, amazing guest today. Uh, his name is Hugo Mercier, and I'll introduce him in just a second. Like, if you've been staying tuned this week, we've been focusing on scientific thinking and having healthy conflict, you know, when we disagree on ideas and all that kind of good stuff. And, you know, Monday we talked to Andy Norman, Tuesday we talked to Lee McIntyre, and today we're talking to Hugo Mercier. So, when I came across Hugo Mercier's first book with Dan Sperber, it was called The Enigma of Reason, all right? And I, I came across this book because I was trying to understand how do we reason? Why are we so irrational? Why do we, you know, uh, lie to ourselves? Why do we lie to others? What kind of... Uh, processes do we go through? And I just started reading a ton of books on this stuff. And I absolutely loved The Enigma of Reason because it came from this kind of like evolutionary psychology uh, point of view. And I was like, ah, I love that stuff. I love me some evolutionary psychology. Well, anyways, uh, Hugo just released another book. I believe it was last year. It's called Not Born Yesterday, which was perfect because as some of you know, I really got into the whole subject of trust. Like, why do we trust people? Uh, how do we know who to trust? And all this kind of stuff with so much human interaction. So, since Hugo is the reason researcher, uh, I thought it'd be perfect to have his episode this week when we're talking about you know, uh, becoming better thinkers and, and looking at the world in a better way and having better conversations and everything like that. So I'm super excited for you guys to hear this conversation that I had with Hugo. And before I introduce him, just be sure that if you're new here, make sure that you follow the podcast or subscribe if you're over on Apple, uh, leave a rating and review and share it with people you know. And you know why? You know why I ask you to do this from the bottom of my heart? It's because we're a newer podcast. Uh, I think uh, we're, we're, yeah, officially two months in. But uh, yeah, when you engage with it, when you rate it, review it, follow it, share it, it helps with the algorithm. And it's like, hey, I'm going to push this podcast out to some more people who might like this stuff. And and I'm also asking some questions from the community, uh, all of you wonderful people. So make sure, uh, check down in the description. Not only will there be links to uh, Hugo's books, but also uh, his social media, as well as my social media, if you ever want to get in touch. But I'm also posting questions of, you know, uh, different ways to improve the podcast and all that kind of stuff. All right. So make sure you check all, all that stuff down below. But... Anywho, without further ado, here is my conversation with Hugo Mercier. Hello, Hugo, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, real quick, for those out there who don't know you, can you please introduce yourself? Uh, hi, this is um, Hugo Mercier. I am a, a researcher at the CNRS in France. I work at the uh, Institut Jean-Nico in Paris, and I study um, reason and communication in, in humans. 
Awesome. So I wanted to start out by talking about your first book, The Enigma of Reason. So in this book, you argue that humans developed reasoning not based on pure logic, but more for social reasons. And in this book, you discuss why we trust certain people and not others. So if you had to choose, what would you say is the number one factor for why we trust people? Like, is it social status, previous credibility, or something else? Broadly, there are two main dimensions that we take into account when deciding whether to uh, believe what someone tells us, I mean, based on based on who they are, based on the source. Uh, the first is whether the source is deemed competent and expert in the relevant domain, so you know whether they are likely to be right or not, whether they are likely to, to, to know the truth uh, or to have good advice. Um, and the other factor is the source's um, benevolence or, or you know, whether their interests um, align with ours. Um, and which factor matters the most uh, will depend on, this, on the circumstances. Uh, but broadly, uh, in, in across you know, bro broad range of contexts, um, whether the source has our best interests at heart is what matters the most. Because um, even if it is someone who is very competent and very knowledgeable, if they, you know, if they, if you don't think they want to tell you the truth, uh, the fact that they know the truth is is largely is largely irrelevant. Um, but but crucially, um, this is very very flexible. And so, for instance, if you start playing poker with with your best friends or you know with family members. Um, you will stop trusting them immediately. And so you know that, you know, if they tell you that you have to fold, uh, you probably shouldn't fold. Um, so we're, we're, we're very much able to take into account not only the broad um, kind of relationship that people have with us, you know, whether it's a friend or someone who we've never known, we've never met, um, but also the much more kind of specific um, incentives that, that bear on, on each situation. Um and so, yeah, I think broadly, um, this is, you know, you know, people's incentives and whether we think they have uh, either an incentive to mislead us or on the contrary, an incentive to, to maintain good long-term relationships with us, that will be the main factor deciding whether we, we trust them or not. Yeah, and that, that makes total sense. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Uh, as you said, you know, um, one of the primary factors is, do we feel that this person has our best interest, right? And, you know, just, you know, uh, off the top of my head, just even thinking about politics, if you're liberal, you're more likely to trust, you know, another liberal, right? But if it comes from somebody who's conservative, you're going to be a little bit more skeptical. And this is something I've been talking with uh, uh, some other authors about too, is like, are we more uh, skeptical or gullible? And based on what you're saying, like, it feels like it's, it's really contextual, right? So we, we might be more gullible if it's somebody that we think that we vetted and they have our best interests and all that kind of stuff. But we will we'll, we'll be more skeptical if we feel that their, their interests don't align with ours. So that's something that I personally try to be very mindful of. And I, I try to teach others or and have conversations about and read books about like like motivated reasoning like when i'm getting information from a source and i'm going through and trying to think like you know do i need to fact check this should i trust this and all that kind of stuff 
one of the things I try to ask is, you know, because it might seem as though they have my interests in mind, but there might be something else going on. For example, uh, maybe, you know, it's advantageous for them to be telling me this information. Can it benefit them in any way? Um, but yeah, I think that perfectly segues into this next question. Um, speaking of politics, so earlier this year on January, uh, January 26th, we saw the Capitol insurrection, right? And a majority of this, what led to this, was these claims of voter fraud where there was no evidence, right? So many of the people who stormed the Capitol also believe in things like QAnon conspiracy theories. So based on your research, why do you believe that people will, you know, take action that could potentially harm themselves or even harm others completely based on unsubstantiated claims. So in that case, I would, I would question the, the premise of the question uh, in the sense that I do not believe that, um, that these, these conspiracy theories about voter frauds uh, really played a major causal role in, in what happened um, in the sense that um, you know, according to polling data, you know, millions of Americans um, share this concern about voter frauds. And, you know, a few only, uh, you know, a couple of a few hundreds of them um, actually, you know, did anything about it. So that suggests that the beliefs in themselves are, uh, are clearly not sufficient um, to lead into to lead to these uh, more dramatic action. Um, so my, my take on, on this type of beliefs is that um, they are more usefully interpreted as a symptom rather than as a cause of, of what's happening. And so if indeed you have uh, these kind of claims of voter fraud, for instance, that are becoming widespread in a population, that suggests that there's a, a very high degree of distrust towards um, either you know, politics in general or at least towards, uh, towards one political party. Uh, and that is very, very problematic. But um, the beliefs uh, do not cause the mistrust. It is really the, the other way around. Um, and you, you can sort of see that when you look at other countries in which um, these beliefs of voter fraud and, and of you know, political malfeasance more generally are much more grounded in reality. And then you can have literally half of the country um, you know, taking to the street, like, like you might have seen in, in Belarus and other countries, which is extremely different from what, from what happened in the U.S., um, um, yeah, so, you know, then again, the fact that these, that these false beliefs spread is worrying, but not because of the effects of these beliefs, but because of, of what it means about um, the, the people who, who accept them and the fact that they are uh, in a position um, that might lead them to take drastic action. And the beliefs then just uh, act as a, as a kind of post-hoc rationalization for, for taking this kind of action that is, uh, that is otherwise motivated. All right. All right. I, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And, and that makes sense, too, with, you know, uh, there's there's been some polling data and things like that about, you know, overall trust of just, you know, the media. Right. But there's a lot of distrust for, you know, the government and things like that. So. So, yeah, that that makes sense. And, you know, I, I would assume I might be completely incorrect, but. It seems like we will believe things where if it seems intuitively correct, right? Like almost like, oh, well, you know, they, the government hasn't benefited me. You know, they're not really looking out for me. So then when you hear something like this and, you know, uh, voting didn't go your way, it's like, okay, it's a little bit 
more believable. So yeah, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully the government and news organizations and a bunch of other people start start earning that that trust back. Um, so the the COVID pandemic has been something that most of us have never seen in our lifetime. Many of my family members and friends uh, are now vaccinated. Even my 12 year old son, he was the last one of the bunch to get vaccinated. But since they said, hey, 12 year olds can get vaccinated. So now he is vaccinated. Um, but yeah, like I, I've been vaccinated too. But even with the vaccine now being out for months with little to no negative side effects for most people, right? Like most people, they have like, you know, just very mild symptoms. There was uh, that blood clot scare, but that was, I believe, like one in a million, things like that. So what I've been, you know, curious about is while, while some people are anti-vaxxers who still believe in the misinformation from Andrew Wakefield about the MMR vaccine, um, minority communities, they're also hesitant about these vaccines due to, you know, uh, misinformation and some shady things that have been done in the past. So based on your, your research and your experience, if, if you had to develop a plan, right, you could do whatever you want. If you had to develop a plan, you know, to get more people to trust the vaccines, what would that look like? Does like that involve getting like celebrities and politicians to endorse the vaccine, which we've already seen. I don't know if that's, you know, helped at all. Or would you get, you know, communities to build trust uh, just based on social proof or, or is there, you know, something else that you would try? Um, so yes, the, the problem of, of vaccine hesitancy is indeed a, a very, uh, a very kind of, uh, sadly relevant one um, these days, and it's uh, it's not it's not a new one either. Um, so in terms of, of the causes, so you, you mentioned the uh, the Andrew Wakefield, uh, you know that fraudulent study that was published in the Lancet um, that claimed to link vaccine with autism, and that has been uh, not only debunked but really again shown to to have been fraudulent. Um, actually, studies suggest that this particular uh, piece of research had relatively little impact um, on, on, on beliefs about vaccination, or rather on vaccination rates. Uh, more precisely, it had some impact on vaccination rates when it was still believed to be, to be accurate, and, and when only doctors essentially knew about it. And some doctors took that into account, uh, you know, which is, you know, to, to some extent sensible in their, in their recommendation to, to not vaccinate children. Um, but, uh, but the effects were relatively small. And then what is quite kind of interesting and counterintuitive, counterintuitive is that when, uh, when that study became widely publicized, uh, essentially around the time that it, it, got, uh, it got debunked, uh, many, many, many people learned about it but it had no effect on vaccination rates. And so the pattern that we find across the world and across history is that in just about every population, um, there is some resistance to vaccination. Uh, vaccination, for a variety of reasons, is not an intuitive form of therapy, however, however you know, incredibly effective it might be. And uh, what is striking is that in every population, you see different reasons for rejecting vaccination. You know, like obviously, you know, you might be more familiar with the kind of MMR and, and, and autism um, theory. In France, it's something about um, some other disease that is supposed to be caused by, by vaccination. 
In other countries, it is, you know, vaccination gives you AIDS or vaccination, you know, makes you impotent or uh, vaccination is, you know, a, you know conspiracy by, the, by some foreign power. So every country essentially has their own theories for, for why uh, vaccination is bad, their own, you know, bad theory about why vaccination is bad. But uh, these theories, as again, in the, in the case of the, you know, the, the, the beliefs about voter fraud and the capital riots, uh, these beliefs are, are mostly kind of post-talk rationalizations that are used to justify an intuitive, an intuitive reaction, uh, rejection of, of vaccination. So, you know, again, they're more of a symptom of a, of a, of a deeper problem rather than a, a cause of the, of the problem. So that's, that's one thing. Um, and when, when, when consequence it has to, in, you know, regarding the, how to fight um, anti-vaccine beliefs or anti-vaccine attitudes is that, you know, even trying to debunk this, this kind of Wakefield study, for instance, is going to have relatively little, little impact, presumably, because people do not, most people do not, are not vaccine hesitant because of that study. They are vaccine hesitant, and that is what makes them interested and, and happy to accept that study. Um, so the effect would be limited. Um, now, uh, all of the suggestions that you that you made that you make regarding how to fight vaccine hesitancy are are sound. Um, uh, so you know you know get celebrities and politicians to endorse the vaccine. Sure, I mean you know the effects might not be huge. Uh, but it can't hurt. Um, this is especially less likely to work if it comes from politicians who might be perceived as kind of associated with more kind of anti-vaccine movement. So in the U.S., um, at the moment, it, it wasn't true at the beginning, but at the moment, it is mostly kind of Republicans uh, who are um, who are you know compared to Democrats who are more more likely to be vaccine hesitant, and so seeing um, Republican politicians and and personalities. Um, you know, get vaccinated publicly is a is a is a good thing. Um, social proof, um, so essentially the, the power of norms, is also good. And there has been studies, for instance, in hospitals, showing that um, hospital when when hospital personnel um, can can wear a little kind of label to say that they have been vaccinated. Uh, I think it was against the for, for the the flu vaccine in, in these studies. Um, then it prompts uh, other people to also get vaccinated because they can see how many of their colleagues have been vaccinated. Um, one thing we have been working on is a, is a chatbot um, that addresses uh, that can address you know the vast majority of people's concerns about uh, vaccination, and that I think works quite well uh, works quite well for people who have kind of you know genuine uh, concerns, uh, especially regarding the COVID vaccines. Uh, you know some some extent rational concerns about you know the speed with which the, the vaccines were were uh, were created or or you know some of the side effects that we are now seeing with the, with the, some of the uh, adenovirus based vaccines um, and we have shown that this this tool when people engage with it for a few minutes it can uh, it can significantly shift shift their opinions towards being more uh, being uh, more pro vaccine uh, so that that can work uh, but essentially I think every individual method. Is going to have, uh, or every individual uh, intervention is going to have relatively small effects, and so you want to um, throw everything you can at the problem, uh, because different interventions will work for different people, and uh, and because you want to to reach as many people as possible. That that's really interesting about uh, the Andrew Wakefield stuff, and it had little to no impact on vaccine hesitancy. But but yeah, uh, I think you know a problem I struggle with, and you know I'm not you know, I'm not sure how many people can relate to it. But but yeah, uh, when you brought up that each 
country kind of has their own specific reasons for vaccine hesitancy. I'm like, oh yeah, you know, that, that makes sense, you know? And I don't know how often we, we, we take that into consideration, but yeah, that's, that's awesome. Like, um, yeah, I, I've read, uh, you know, books like, uh, what, what was it like? Uh, well, Robert Cialdini's, uh, you know, famous book on like, you know, persuading people and things like that. And, you know, I, I try to think about that stuff because like when, when you're talking about, you know, that social proof and like wearing like, you know, a little badge or pin or, you know, sign like, hey, I got vaccinated. You know, I think about, you know, research that shows how uh, when people like flaunt that they voted and their little voting stickers, like when people see, oh, someone like me did this thing. OK, maybe I'll do it. But also that that chatbot that you mentioned is very interesting. And here here's my belief. Here's here is what I think. I think that governments should have just social psychologists just on board with just about everything, because if we don't understand human behavior, it's very difficult to get things going. And I, I know that, you know, there are people like uh, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein who worked with like the Obama administration. Um, I'm curious how much their impact was while working with the uh, that administration. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't see it as often as we should. It seems like all the publicity that, and all the news is around like, oh, vaccine passports and this and this and this. And we're not really getting to the root of what's going on with vaccine hesitancy. What does the research show can counteract this and how do we implement it? You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, so in Not Born Yesterday, one of the chapters that I absolutely love, like you, you helped me so much. So let me thank you for that. Uh, but the chapter I absolutely loved was on why we gossip, right? Uh, so in it, you explain that this is kind of a form of social grooming and how we know who we can and can't trust and why this was important, you know, throughout evolution and, you know, uh, our old school tribes and all that. So since uh since the dawn of like movies and television we've seen celebrity gossip become like this main staple in our society right like today like one of the big one of the biggest genres on youtube is youtube drama or on social media and regular people become obsessed with this gossip so in your opinion why why do you think we're drawn towards gossip when it's about celebrities or influencers um because it it doesn't seem to make sense um because these are people we've we've never met so why does it matter whether we trust them or not like it makes sense if we you know if we're uh, talking about you know our family or you know friends or people in our social circles circles because or even our coworkers, these are people that we have to interact with and like we're, we're going to need to trust them at some point or know if we can't trust them but i've been curious why why we do this with people that we're most likely never going to meet so that's that's a, a good question um the usual um, kind of interpretation of why we why we like celebrity gossip, I think, is that it is a type of um, kind of super stimulus in a way. So, uh, you know, in order to, to decide what uh, what kind of information you should pay attention to, uh, you look for a number. You know, people look for a number of, of cues. And so, for instance, if uh, some social information is about people who are you know powerful or you know beautiful or you know smart or uh, you know kind of, you know socially valued in, in, in any possible way um, that information becomes more relevant 
And so that's true of, you know, of the people you know. I mean, everything else equal. Maybe some information about your boss is going to be more relevant than information about the new intern or, you know, some, something like that. And so this is a, a sound heuristic. And in the environment in which we evolved, um, it was, you know, essentially a perfect heuristic. Like there are kind of few exceptions. And it was, it was a, a very good way of, of deciding broadly how, you know, what kind of information you should preferentially pay attention to. Um, unfortunately, in the, in, the, in the environment in which we live, these cues have become much less reliable because, as you pointed out in your question, uh, the, the people who are the most, you know, the most popular, the most, you know, the strongest, the most you know, the smartest, the, you know, the most of whatever, um, uh, you know, typically we won't ever meet them. And, and yet we can't really help but be interested in them. Um, and I think it is it is one of these kind of adaptive lag, uh, in which case the in which you know the the environment has evolved faster than our psychology, and so we keep being interested in in people even though um, even though you know in, in reality it doesn't really um, it doesn't really it's not that relevant. Um, as as a side note, uh, it might seem as if it's completely dysfunctional. But um, if you live in an environment in which everybody shares the same trait, then it it doesn't have to be that irrelevant because uh, you know if if it's if for even if for bad reasons everybody I know is interested in in you know Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie and, and Angelina Jolie, if I have new and and kind of juicy and you know kind of um, um, secret information about them, um, I might kind of increase my status among people who are who share the same interest. And so at that stage, it becomes more of a, of a, of a kind of public good problem. That is, everybody would be better off if no one was interested in, in celebrities. But given that most people are interested in celebrities, it makes sense from your point of view to also be interested in them because you can, you can, uh, you can kind of score social points by having um, new information about them. Um, and also, I mean, you know, we, we tend to see that very pejoratively as, you know, people who read... Uh, um, you know, people's, or I don't know what the names of the magazines who talk about them in, in the US are, but, uh, but you know, um, you know, celebrity about, you know, sorry, information about, you know, um, Hollywood celebrities and these sort of things. But, you know, if I read a biography of, of, of Einstein, um, I'm even less likely to meet him than I am to, to meet uh, Brad Pitt. Uh, and, but that is, you know, very socially valued among, you know, kind of smart people. Um, and it's not entirely clear that the process is, is, a, is a very different one. So, Maybe we shouldn't kind of look down on people who are interested in, in, in Brad Pitt all that much. Yeah, that 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 makes sense. Whether it's you know like the evolutionary lag or it, it it's the the social status type thing. Um, one of the reasons I'm curious about this is I had my own thing back in 2019, and I was just a I was just blown away by how many people were talking about me, and and all this and why people were you know feeding into it and all. And I'm like, what these these people don't even know me, but. Uh, you know, I was curious, like uh, another topic that I'm very, very interested in is status, right? Our social status and how we signal to other people in our group and how we measure up with other people. And, and what you said, you know, it makes sense. Like in certain social circles, if we, if we can signal that we're educated or knowledgeable about something, that, that could be a sign of status. And then people look to us. And, and I've been curious if that's kind of, you know, where... Uh, whether it's like gossip magazines or, you know, journalists who specifically focus on it or whatever it is, they gain status because people are then looking to them for this kind of signal of, oh, this person 
has information that might be relevant to me. I can't remember which book I was reading this in, but uh, another theory that I heard just about our obsession with like celebrity culture and all that is that something we do is we try to model behavior of people that we we deem as successful, right? Uh, so when we see someone who's like rich or beautiful or famous, right, we're, we're looking like, how do they talk? Uh, how do they live? How do they interact with people? How do they, uh, you know, uh, manage their relationships? And, and you know, we, we think, and it, this also seems irrational that, you know, oh, well, you know, I have to kind of watch them because if I act like that, then maybe I can have the, the same success. And uh, <laughs> I, I don't know, it doesn't seem like that that's a very successful or useful strategy, but uh, that did sound like kind of a, a practical theory as well of why we kind of do this and we get obsessed with, you know, uh, watching like shows like Cribs and seeing how rich people live and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, yeah. And, and when I think about it, not only did I love that chapter, I, I love, I love the whole, whole book. Um, and something, something that I even made a YouTube video about is, is how we're terrible at spotting liars. Like something that drives me nuts is body language channels, right? And people who try to sell others on the idea that they can read body language. But yeah, you had, you had an entire chapter in this on how, we, as humans, are absolutely terrible at spotting liars. And, and it's one of the things that I've been reading a lot about since, you know, diving into books like yours and other books on trust and all that kind of stuff. So can you, can you kind of summarize? I know everybody's about to leave this podcast and go buy a copy of your book. But can you kind of summarize why it's so difficult to tell when someone's lying and why do we lack this, this kind of self-awareness that we are terrible and it is nearly impossible to spot a liar purely based on body language or some other small little cues that they might do? Um, so yes, there has been a lot of research on people's ability to detect lies. Um, and most of that research has looked at situations in which um, you can't tell who is lying or not just based on the content of what they're telling you. Um, so for instance, you have, you know, employees and one of them is suspected of, of you know, stealing something from the office and, uh, and you don't know who, who did it. Um, you can't, you know, judge just from, from what they're telling you, um, you know, who did it. They can't, you know, they're not going to, to say things are really you know, stupid or self-incriminating. And so people, researchers have looked at the, at whether demeanor, demeanor has, uh, or kind of carries reliable cues to, de to, um, to, to deception and to lying. So, you know, whether people are going to looking at, look at you in the eyes or not, whether they will be fidgeting, uh, whether they will, you know, exhibit other, um, signs of nervousness. And, uh, and what they have found is that if you just look at, at this kind of cues to demeanor, um, you cannot at all tell who is lying and who is telling the truth with any reliability whatsoever. And in an evolutionary perspective, um, that makes complete sense because there would be, you know, there's no reason that liars would, would send cues telling, you know, other people that they are lying. Like it makes no sense whatsoever that they would do that. And nothing stops them from, from not sending such cues. Like, you know, evolutionarily, uh, you know, if, if uh, you know, if, if humans, 
you know, there's nothing, so there's nothing stopping humans from, from evolving the ability to lie without, you know, sweating or looking people in the eyes or, or you know, fidgeting. I mean, it's, it's, uh, there is no, there is no constraint uh, there. Um, so it's, it's what we should expect that people should, should not be able to tell who lies based on, uh, on their demeanor and, and other kind of, you know, low level um, cues. Um, instead, the way we tell who lies is, um, is we look at incentives. And so we are more likely to believe that someone who has a very strong incentive to lie to us is lying to us. Um, I mentioned earlier the example of poker. And so if you're, once you're playing poker with your friends, you essentially assume that they're lying to you uh, or you know, that they might be lying to you and you discount whatever, uh, whatever they tell you, uh, irrespective of whatever cue you might try to read. And it's just, you know, it's really impossible. You can just, you know, not, you just can't rely on what they're telling you because you know they have no incentive to, to tell you the truth. Um, so that is the, the main thing that people use is, is, is the incentives of the, of, the, of the speaker to decide whether they are lying or not. Um, as I mentioned earlier, they also look at the content. So if you tell me something uh, that I know is, is false, then, well, I, I know you're lying. Um, so that's something that these experiments that uh, do not look at, but that is something that in everyday life we, we use all the time. Um, and the main mechanism that we use, because usually liars tend to, you know, are smart enough not to say things that blatantly contradict reality, um, is that we, we check uh, after the fact whether the person was lying to us or not. And, um, and if we find out, if we find out that they were lying to us, uh, then they will, you know, suffer consequences, we will, you know, be angry at them, we might, you know, aggress them, we might, suddenly we will lower, um, um, you know, the esteem we have for them. And, and that is what mostly keeps people in check. Um, so I guess, yeah, as you're saying, even though we know that people, and that includes, you know, professionals, you know, policemen and policewomen and, and you know, and, and, you know, law enforcement uh, uh, people more generally um, are unable to tell who lies and who tells the truth just based on these on this kind of behavioral um, demeanor cues. Um, and yet they believe that they can. And, uh, and you know, even lay people who are also um, useless uh, also believe that they can tell liars. And so what's interesting is, you know, why, uh, why, do, we, uh, why do we believe that? And I guess, uh, so I don't, I don't, it's not something I've really thought about all that much, but if I had to take a guess, it would be that um, it, it is, in a way, we are able to catch most liars, but not in that way. And so we are right that we're good at catching liars uh, more generally. Uh, so maybe we're just confused about how we do it. Um, and it's also good for other people, you know, to believe that we're good at catching liars. And so it would kind of make sense that we would want them to believe that, um, even if uh, even if it's not true. So maybe that's why we uh, why we we tell them that. Yeah, and that's that's one of the reasons I love evolutionary psychology because I love the way you like broke it down. Like we <laughs> we would not evolve in a way that would show people that we're lying, right? And in your book and many other books, it it dives into that of you know deception and you know even in the animal kingdom, and and all of that, right? And and yeah, uh, it's 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 something I I wonder about. I'm like, why why do we think we're so good at this and you brought up another good point i was recently reading another book it was called uh liars and outliers and was talking about you know just uh uh how we you know run successful societies and you know there are punishments for lying and things like that and that's one of the best ways to keep all of us in check you know um 
but but yeah like we we can catch liars but not in that way and sometimes i wonder when i see people you know like some of these body language channels or even some of the books on reading body language i think one of the best sellers is uh uh, every, what everybody is saying is from an ex-FBI guy. And, and yeah, I, I think, I think, here's Chris's theory about this. The reason why we believe that, you know, oh, someone looked up and to the left or, oh, they like, you know, scratched their nose when I asked them that question and we, we believe that body language is some kind of major tell is, is purely be because we're control freaks. We, my theory is we don't like, <laughs> one of the primary factors that we don't like to believe that we could not catch somebody who was lying to our face, right? Um, you know, we don't want to believe that, you know, uh, our partner could ever cheat on us. So we want to know that we could catch them. And, and it's interesting too, because with so many wrongful convictions, right? And people getting punished for things that they can't do. You know, when I, when I have these debates with people, I'm like, well, you know, lie detectors aren't even admissible in court because then you get down the whole rabbit hole of, are they lying if they truly believe this thing, you know? And and yeah, we could do an entire episode just on lie detection, but I don't wanna keep you here all day, Hugo. I got one last question for you. So, uh, uh, so when we're talking about, um, you know, uh, body language channels and even law enforcement, like I wanna get your opinion on this, these specific things because I don't know if my theory is correct and you are far more educated and you research this stuff. So when when we're looking at this stuff, like it's it's this kind of pseudoscience, right? So why do you why do you think, because we're talking about trust, why do you think that people put this kind of blind faith into those who claim they can read body language? Right. Like there's no there's no evidence like I'm kind of surprised because, you know, part of it feels like part of the way that we trust people is that we we check someone's track record. And when I see these things, I, I see the, the high inaccuracy. So. So, yeah. Like, why do you why do you think, you know, we believe this without sufficient evidence? And do you think that body language reading can have any kind of negative consequences if somebody like really believes in it? Um, so yeah, so that it can have negative consequences is, you know, is, is very clear, I think, uh, because, you know, people might have been convicted, uh, based on, you know, you know, law enforcement people thinking that they were uh, lying or telling the truth, which might, sorry, thinking that they were lying when they were telling the truth, uh, which might have prompted them to, you know, exert more pressure to, 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 um, get, you know, confessions, even if they were false confessions, for instance. So, um, so clearly there, there can be negative consequences from, from that belief uh, when it is held in particular by, by people in, in a position of power. Um, and it makes sense that they would want these things to work. I mean, because they are in a situation in which they know that the people who are talking to them have an incentive to lie. And so it, it's not a very, you know, they can't use that to discriminate between who tells the truth and who lies because, you know, everybody who is a suspect has potentially an incentive to lie. Um, they can't really wait either to, to, to seek an after the fact whether they are telling the truth or lying because typically if they have to rely on, on, on people's uh, testimony, 
um, then it means they don't have you know material evidence um, showing uh, you know who did who did it or you know showing what what exactly happened. And so their only recourse in many cases is, uh, unfortunately, to look at the behavior of the of the person. And so it makes sense that they would want to believe that they that they can do something with that. Um, you know, it's it would be part of their job, and you know, they I'm sure they, they they tell each other that they can do it, and and so it makes sense that they that they would want they would want, they would want that to be possible. Um, and unfortunately, it's also relatively intuitive in the sense that um, a lot of the cues that people associate with lying are just like, you know, like fidgeting and not, look, not, not looking people in the eyes or sweating, um, are cues that are just cues of nervousness. Uh, and so even if it is true that liars can be nervous, um, people who are not lying, but who are, you know, accused of, of some, you know, some, some crime can also be very nervous, obviously. And so nervousness is not, uh, it is not a reliable um, cue to, to whether someone is lying or not. But it gives you the impression that something is going on because what you're picking up on is actually nervousness, uh, but you believe you're you're picking up on, on lying, and and that might be one reason why we um, why we believe we can uh, we can read these cues. Yeah, and that's that's something that I I get concerned about too. Is that you know this idea that uh, behaviors associated with nervousness are also indicators of lying, and it's like you know as somebody who's struggled with anxiety most of my life, I'm like. You can't indicate that. Like, I remember uh, my friend who did absolutely nothing wrong, and he was just freaking out uh, one time when he got pulled over uh, by a cop. And it was just for something like minor, like a turn signal or or, or whatever, or uh, suspicion of, you know, he might be drunk. And he was completely sober, and he was so nervous. And I'm like, well, if he was reading his cues, my friend would be screwed. But anyways, anyways, Hugo, thank you so, so much for your time. And everybody listening, please, please, please. Do yourself such a huge favor. Just treat yourself today. Check out the description down below and grab a copy of both of Hugo's books, all right? The first one is Enigma of Reason that he uh, co-authored with Dan Sperber. And the second one is Not Born Yesterday. Uh, so yeah, we talked a lot about Not Born Yesterday today, but uh, Enigma of Reason, it, it really, really helped me out and understand how we reason and all that kind of stuff, which is so important when we're talking about becoming better thinkers. So check out the description down below. There will be links to both the books as well as uh, Hugo's social media if you want to follow him, keep up to date with all the new stuff he's doing. All right. And before I let you go, just a quick reminder, if you're new here, enjoyed the episode, make sure you follow, make sure you rate it, review it, share it with other people. It helps get the word out. And and if you want to support the podcast in any way, there are some links down in the description below. You can support the podcast by uh, getting some of the books that I've written. They're available over on the rewiredsoul.com or you can become a patron. Or uh, you could also sign up for BetterHelp Online Therapy. As many of you know, I am in recovery. And yeah, mental health is one of my top priorities. And I've personally used BetterHelp Online Therapy. It's, it's cheap. It's convenient. You work with licensed therapists and you do it from the comfort of your home. So if that's something you're interested in, check down below. There is an affiliate link. All right. But anyways, I hope you guys are enjoying this week of scientific thinking and healthy conflict. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I have the amazing Amanda Ripley. And then after that, on Friday, I have Michael Shermer. So you want to make sure that you don't miss it. So once again, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you have a wonderful, amazing rest of your day. And I will see you in the next one. <laughs>